Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Let's get after it. Guess who's back in Stu Hart's dungeon? Guess who's back? Back again. Kyle's back. He's my friend. Tell some men. <laughs> well, hello. How's it going? It, you know, I've, I've been better. I've been feeling a little under the weather, Kyle. Yeah, yeah, it's been going around. A little nasty bug going around. Although, I will say, I have tested positive for COVID now. So, dum, dum, dum. Yeah. Um, but I will say, having dealt with it for almost two weeks, it, that was the worst part of it, is it just would not fucking go away. Right. Um, other than that, I mean, yeah, it was like a bad cold. It was like a, it was like a, luff, uh, a, luff, a rough little flu, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it sucked, don't get me wrong, but it was not that bad. I don't understand why we're shutting the world down over a little cold. Listen, I have to agree with you, so here's the thing, guys. Kyle, Kyle's, co- Kyle's COVID positive, and he's been hanging out over here in Stu Hart's dungeon, and the whole family here has been sick, and uh, I was fingers crossed in it, like, hey, we're, we've got all these other respiratory viruses going around. It must be that, until I couldn't smell or taste anything anymore. Yeah. So, so now I'm like... Son of a bitch. But I, I, but so this is the thing, man. I started feeling sick. You know what? Let me t- take a step back here. I'm reasonably sure that this whole household has got COVID now. But what I'm also reasonably sure about is that I had it in January. I mean, I always sort of suspected I did because of the way I was sick, uh, which do- it just doesn't happen that often to me. And it was unusual. Mm-hmm. So I think it's possible that... The antibody- it's been long enough that if I had antibodies from, from January that maybe they weren't working this time or that it was, a, it was one of the variants and it, my, my protection wasn't quite enough and so whatever. Um, but that's just a speculation. I have no idea that it's possible. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I noticed was that I had... Let's talk about symptoms for a second. So I noticed I had... Um, well, I, I guess like a fever, you might say. Yeah. Um, so it just exactly kind of like what I would say. it hit me like around one o'clock in the afternoon while I was working, and I had to go lay down in bed for a little while, and that's super unusual. Yeah, I like just took my computer with me. I just laid down in bed for like two and a half hours. I was in bed, um, and then I went back to work, and I ne- didn't stop. So it, for that was that was it. I was down and out for two and a half hours. That's what COVID did to me. Now, that was in the beginning. And then I started feeling a little better. Then I started feeling a little worse. And that's been, that's been like a a train that I've been on. Yep. Um, none of the symptoms that I have had are any, any different from any other flu or cold or what sickness that I've had in the past, except 
some hard some hard to pin down details like the fact that it, it, it's lasting a very long time you know that's very unusual like yeah you know it, it, everyone in this house has been feeling like this for two weeks it gets a long time to be sick yep so that's unusual um the kids they seem to bounce back very quickly it's hard to even tell they're sick apart from like sniffles mm-hmm. you know it's hard to even tell that, that they're sick um one of the other people in the household who's elderly and and not in great health and has a history of health of health problems um that are were damaging to his to his organs um and he and he's the one that maybe feels the worst and he's basically fine yeah you know he's like you know a a little achy and he's whiny but he looks fine he's getting around he's fine He's, he's got a cold so he's got a cold so that's what it seems like to me and i and one, I'm just wanting to explain that to agree with you that yes, we're all sick. Yes, there's some parts of it that were, um, you might say, extreme. There were some parts of it that you know, <laughs> we're sick, you know, for sure. Yeah. But but deathly ill, no. Mm-mm. Like worried enough that you're calling the doctor, no, no. The worst part of it, uh, for me, and the thing that makes it like. You know, like you said, like you said, a lot of it was just regular old cold symptoms, not even particularly bad versions of them. Right. The one thing that does set it apart a little bit is that it. You're right. It take. It took me forever to get over it. Like almost two weeks, um, of you know just feeling like I had a cold. Uh, and I, the worst symptom for me was pretty much fever and just fatigue. Fatigue for sure. And so, you know. I noticed, I think you said this, I can't remember if it was on the podcast earlier, but that, so I would wake up and I would feel like shit, uh, but as I started getting moving through the day a little bit, it would like, not. I wouldn't feel as bad, you know? Right, yep. Uh, But then, I don't know, maybe like five o'clock every evening, uh, that fever just starts rising up again, Mm. uh, and I got a little bit depressed over it. Like, I was like, am I ever, am I just going to feel like this for the rest of my life? Um, but then it, you know, it finally broke a little bit over the past weekend. So, so I, I just want to plug in this ridiculous thought that I had about COVID. So you, you know how like the people that talk about the lab leak theory, um, they say that the research that was being done was longevity research. So life extension research. That's the, what, that's the impression I got. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that's what I thought that they said. And I was like, you know what the, everybody's so, uh, uh, panicked. Uh, that people need the vaccine, that we need to have 100% of the people be vaccinated, even if they've been sick and got antibodies and all that, which is strange. Um, and I had this thought, like, what if, what if the research they were doing, the longevity research, was successful? Yeah. And everyone who's got sick with COVID is now immortal. Oh, we're man. No, we're, none of us are going to die. And the only way that they can save the world from overpopulation or whatever is going to happen is to give us this vaccine that cures us of our immortality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's fucked up, uh, dude. That might be it. Somebody needs to write a novel with that theme ASAP. I hope that turns out to be true. Fuck a novel. Mm. Let's, let's, make, let's, immortal. let's make it a movie. And who's the, who's the starring role in this movie? Uh who is the character? Like, is he like what a virologist or something? Well, he could be the vi- virologist. Yeah, let's make him a vi- virologist. <laughs> let's also make him sick with the disease, and he's the one who's discovered that he's immortal, and that everybody else who's got infected is immortal. He's the only one that knows. You'd imagine just a little caveat. 
Imagine if you were immortal. You're like, I'm never going to die, but you're sick like you were over COVID <laughs> for the rest of eternity. You just have the, those symptoms. That would suck. That would not be worth it. Okay, that wouldn't be worth it. And I, I do want to talk about the fatigue for a second because it's legit and it's weird. Mm-hmm. So first of all, my sister and her whole family had, had COVID and they live together with my elderly parents. God, it's weird calling them that. Like I'm not, they're not elderly, like seventies or eighties, but th- my dad is a can- is cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom has some weird autoimmune problem where all of her joints uh, are, are completely destroyed and she has to have them all replaced. Like, uh, you know, she's, she's, well, she's older, you know, she's in her sixties. It's not like she's Jordan Peterson's daughter and she's in a teenager having it happen. But, um, point is, they're in really bad shape. My dad's had cancer for many, many years. His spine has been completely eaten up by it. He's survived COVID, no problem, mm-hmm. no problem. Yep. And and so it's so the point is, I was getting to my sister telling me that she didn't how she found out she was sick or how she was suspicious she was sick was she was running five miles. Or, or a 5K maybe it was. I, I can't remember. But it's she, a pretty impressive thing to be able to do <laughs> when you're sick. She runs, she runs like that, you know, regularly. So like three, three to five miles would be no problem. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of at the top end of kind of what she's willing to do, to do or what she has time to do, you might say. It's not like she's used to running marathons. But three or five miles she could do. Yeah. And she was like, oh, man, I, I, you know, I got like a mile into my run. And I thought, I'm, a, I'm a way more tired than I usually am. Oh, okay. And that's what she noticed whilst she finished her run. Yeah. So she she was able sick with covid, taking care of a whole family of sick people, doing a 5-mile run, sick with covid, no problem. Had no idea she was she was even sick until she realized how fatigued she was. So I just want to put that in perspective for people listening who maybe haven't been sick with it that that that's you know, don't worry so much. Well, that's that that's an example that I'm bringing to the table. Yeah. Um did you see uh, Bill Maher on Jimmy, not Fallon, the uh, the one that sucked. Yeah, Kimmel. <laughs> I mean, I don't like any of those. Like, late night is just so bad. Um, but I, I particularly hate Jimmy Kimmel. He's such a fucking pussy. He, he sure is. When Jimmy Kimmel did the crying on camera for Cecil the Lion, yeah. that was it for me. I was like, yeah, this, yeah. guys, this is the man show guy. Yeah. This is the man show guy who's crying on TV right now, pretending to you that he fucking cares that somebody shot a, an old animal in Africa. Fuck Jimmy yeah. Kimmel. Yeah, basically. But did you see Bill Maher on there? I saw two things recently that Bill Maher, Bill Maher said that I could. I, I agreed with and couldn't believe he said, but which one was the Jimmy Kimmel one? Uh, that was the one where he said that, so they did a survey and they asked Democrats how oh, yeah. likely you are to go into the hospital if you get COVID. And they, it, like all of the Democrats, like 75% of the Democrats in the country are like 50%. Like, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like high. And the real number? It's like one to one, three yeah, percent. One That's fucking crazy. But, um, so that was crazy that he even acknowledged that, yep. you know, although not really, because I mean, Bill Maher is a, like a, a terrible shit lib, but he also has like this badass streak in him, you know, this like contrarian badass streak. So, well, you know, isn't isn't that funny, though, that that used to be the liberal place? Oh, yeah. It was the place for the person with the outside opinion. It was the ex- accepting place. And now it's the orthodox. It's so weird. It's someone yeah. like Bill Maher can't say edgy things anymore without risking upsetting the liberals. Do you know why he got kicked off of his show Politically Incorrect? No. What did he do? So Bill Maher is a badass, okay? Um, 
right after 9-11, um, George W. Bush said something to the effect of calling the terrorists cowards. And Bill Maher was like, uh, I don't know. People getting on planes and flying themselves into buildings does not seem cowardly, okay? Yeah, true. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, so basically that's what he got kicked off for saying, yes, they're evil. I mean, he he did say that. It's not like he was praising them. But uh, that's like right after 9-11, that's a super brave thing to say. That's And I completely agree with it. So Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, I do remember Religious when it came out. And yeah. I remember watching it and thinking nothing good about Bill Maher. Like yeah. the, the fact that you would sit there and highlight the ridiculousness of a, a certain social demographic mostly of poor white people that have strong conservative religious convictions and make them up like clowns for the world to see for two hours that's how it felt to me yeah. uh, I thought it was mean I thought it, it what point were you making man that hillbillies are, are, are if, uh, gullible and, and, and largely dumb is that is that the point you're trying to make yeah uh, that movie I liked it when it came out I thought it was funny um, and I mean, in a, in that kind of like mean spirited bullyish way, I still think some of it is kind of funny. Uh, I just don't feel the same way about religion now, so it's hard. You know, I, I definitely think it's the movie was just mean spirited. You know, mean spirited, yeah. So and and it seems to me like picking on a minority, like I like. Mm-hmm. It seems clear today that super conservative people are the minority. At least that's that's the picture that the media paints, and and you know. It's like the it's like the United States is at least the the people that matter are the the college educated kind liberal pop population and everyone else is just this fringe you know uh, part of the population that lives on farms and nowhere it's like nowheresville it's fucking weird how they think yeah. about it that way <laughs> they paint it up that way but yeah. but so so we're supposed to believe that the crazy religious people are fringe that we can ignore and those are the people that Bill Maher drags in front of the camera and makes fun of for the world to see yeah. these fringe minority group you know it's like that's not what a liberal is supposed to do man but but when that movie came out the public uh view was different when that when that movie came out the public view was that the conservative war hawkish um you know, part of the population was in power. Yeah. You know, George Bush and the conservatives were yeah. in power. That kind of thing. Those people are all still in power. I mean, <laughs> they are. But I just want to point out the perception differences between 2001 and today. The perception differences mm-hmm. of America. Oh yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. Yeah. Night and day. Night Two, and day. 2001. Like, yeah. It's a it's a different world. It's a, a completely world. different world. So I have to say, guys, I was scared, I think, to get COVID. I was scared of it a little because of everything, obviously. But I wouldn't, didn't admit it to myself. Uh, but I wasn't eager to get the vaccine, even though some people in this house are vaccinated. Uh, I wasn't... Oh, that's another thing to point out. My wife got her, got her vaccine early, just like a, good, like a good American. She just marched in there and did her duty. Mm. She was sick with all of us, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's another thing that Bill Maher said in that thing. He's like, I got it after I... He said, uh, yeah, I got it after I was vaccinated, which is a little weird. He said that, so... Yeah, it's fucking very weird. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I'm getting off track, but it reminds me of this... Uh, I listened, I've been listening to Brett Weinstein's podcast. Yeah. Um, because I, I was listening to Rogan so much, but like I was starting to skip... I started to really enjoy the, the, 
the more intellectual episodes. Mm. Like whenever there's a doctor on, whenever there's a scientist on, whenever there's a physicist on, I'm like, fuck yes. Yeah. And so, but there's few and far between on Rogan. So like, I'm, I was like, oh, let me go over to Brett Weinstein's podcast and just listen to these professors talk. And uh, there was one that he did on COVID. It was called it was on ivermectin, actually. Oh yeah. And it was really interesting because it was this research scientist that's really. Uh, deeply involved with the standard of care that is being used for COVID today. Mm-hmm. And he's a huge advocate of ivermectin. Yeah. So I was like, oh. Dude, the ivermectin thing is very weird. Very weird. It's like, to anybody who is willing to use their brain just a little tiny bit, you look at how they're acting towards ivermectin and you're like, but like none of what you're saying makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you're just... It, it, like they get these new talking points that ivermectin is for horses and shit like yep. that, you know, and then they just run with it. Yeah. Like them choosing to run with it changes the history of right. the drug. So that's the thing. The people running with it, these are the smart people. These are the liberals. These are the people that have a clue, right? Yeah. Mostly college educated. Mostly the, these are the ones that we're supposed to believe know they're, you know what they're talking about. These are the people who are saying ivermectin is a horse, horse drug. And uh, I'm learning on this podcast that ivermectin has been used for like 60 years, very heavily in Africa in particular, to fight um, to fight that uh, uh, river blindness that they get from the parasites. So it's been used in humans there for a very, very long time. And, and it's so, so successful and it has such, um, um, such a history of safety that this guy was saying if it were up to him, he would have ivermectin in every single household's medicine cabinet, and people would take it at the first sign of getting sick, regardless of what you were sick with. You you didn't have to know what you're sick with because it works against parasites, it works against viruses. They don't even know quite how it works, but people can take it every day, like they do in Africa. And there's no toxicity. There's no there's no negative side effects. People don't overdose or die from it. So it's like we've got this tool. And it's proving to be effective. Um, We should be using it even as a, uh, uh, you can even take it to prevent getting the disease at all. You could take it every day and, and potentially that could keep you safe from getting COVID. So probably other shit, none of that shit we hear about. Yeah. And this guy is saying that they did it in Peru and they did it in all of these uh, of kind of poorer countries that have more difficulty getting the vaccine, that they need a more practical solution. So that's what they've been using to tremendous results. That in in, in Peru, they have no problem with their hospital over overflowing. They have no problem with it whatsoever. I think maybe in Mexico too, they, they, they used it. Anyway. I have to be honest. Um, I don't know that we have had too much of a problem with hospitals being overloaded. That's like one of those things that they talk about. And I'm just like... Yeah, you say that, you know, but um, I haven't seen a ton of evidence for it outside of places like New York, like, you know, in the in the early parts of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm just super skeptical of all of that. Listen, I I keep getting off track. I start starting to say something about admitting about being afraid of this disease. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I'm sorry. I just wanted to get back to this because I just want to say it out loud. I was afraid of contracting it. And now that I'm almost positive I do have it because I haven't been able to taste my food in four days, and I'm not kidding, nothing, or smell anything, yeah. um, that what was I afraid of? And isn't that always how it goes? When you're afraid of something and you build it up in your head, 
you know, psych yourself out. Psych yourself out. You make it. You make it into a giant monster, mm-hmm. and then you go in there, and it's like, you know, I I was in bed for two and a half hours, and I didn't miss. I didn't miss anything. I didn't yeah. miss taking care of the kids. I didn't miss my, obli- my obligations at work. Nothing. Did it, it, it sort of slowed me down. There's a little bit of a brain fog that's involved with it that my sister mentioned. And when she did, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can definitely feel that a little bit. And the fatigue that kind of lasts. Th- apart from that, Jesus, man, I saw a guy yesterday wearing rubber gloves and a mask <laughs> in a car by himself. And I thought to myself, this is what we're this is what we're afraid of. This is what we're that afraid of. I mean, so now that I've been sick with it, I just I, I just want to say the boogeyman is a pussy, you guys. That's yep. what I want to say. Yep. That's what I want to say. That's more shades of Bill Maher in that thing again. He was talking about how ticket sales in blue states are like like nothing's going on. People are terrified to leave their homes. Mm. And having experienced this, it's like I didn't go to work this, not this past week, but the week before that. I didn't go to work any of the five days. I was gone. This is my fucking third week at this place, mm. too, by the way. So, uh, luckily, uh, you know, luckily my boss was pretty understanding and I ended up testing positive. So, um, it was good that I was gone for that long. Um, but, uh, yeah, okay. I forgot where I was going for a second, but the uh the ticket sales and like like you know, you've experienced this now. It's not that bad. Like we're shutting down the world in economic ways, in like human development ways. Mm. Uh just like think about this last year and a half, man. It's like a I don't know, it's like kind of nightmare scenario, Absolutely. you know? Uh, and over this cold that we just had. I can't believe how not bad it was, Kyle. Listen, not I'm, not, I'm not saying it wasn't strange. It was strange, and it, and it was a little little worse because of the, the length of time than a normal cold or, or flu. But Jesus Christ, it's, it's not, a, not a big deal, guys. Nope. And I know people are dying. I know people are dying some. But listen, man, in my experience, in my reference to my sister's house with my dad who's had cancer for years who's who was has actually outlived by a long shot what they what they gave him you know he's in very poor health my mom as well the whole family's fine my parents both had it too now the same thing in in this house again somebody who suffered from hepatitis c for years with damage to his organs for years in really bad shape Fine. Yep. So this is what I've experienced. This is this is these are the anecdotal examples that I can point to. I can't point to anybody getting sick and dying. Nobody. Nope. Even though you're hearing about it, you're hearing about it like it's a big problem. So this is something that I just have to say. I just have to say, guys. I mean, what the? I, I don't understand why totally we're being told to be this afraid. That's what I want to say. Fuck. Yep. That is. Uh... Definitely something, and I mean, you know, when COVID first came out, like, I'm talking like 2019, end of 2019, early part of, because I was, I was hip to COVID because of Stefan Molyneux, who was like a big time, like, this is going to be bad Mm. type of a person. So, um, I started hearing about it from him early. He was, you know, and I I have a lot of respect for Stefan Molyneux as a, an intellectual person. I don't think Stefan Molyneux is stupid. No. So I was listening and I was like, okay, maybe the, you know, like the idea of a bad virus, I've been hearing about that for, that's a totally reasonable thing to think that could happen. So I was kind of scared at first. Right. 
Um, but then as time went on, I, like basically getting it right now has just re- reaffirmed everything that I, all of my skepticism about this. Yep. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just hope that, I, I, honestly, I kind of hope that people get it because then it's it's not that bad. Well, it's because the fear is in the unknown. Yeah. And when you don't, when you haven't had it, you don't know what what's going to happen. That's where the fear is. Yeah. Now that I've had it, you know where the fear is for me? What's still in the unknown, but the unknown is now kicked kicked the can down the road. So for me, it's I've had I've had it. Um, I'm not scared of it at all. Mm-hmm. Getting this is not something that scares me in the slightest anymore. No. I could get this every year, and it would be a bummer. But it's but it's it's fine. Um, what what worries me is what will happen in. 15 years like you carry a virus around with you forever right if you guys remember from the ninth grade right the virus attacks your cell it it injects all that dna right into your cell it hijacks the cell it 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 literally incorporates the viral dna into your own dna so that when your cells split you're actually creating more viral dna in every new cell that you're that you're creating until whenever it decides to it just just turns on starts cranking out viruses destroys those cells you get your little herpes sore on your lip that's what's going down the virus just decided hey i'm alive again i'm going to resurrect like jesus fucking christ and give you a little a little cold sore that's what happens it never goes away it's always there in your dna forever that's what's happened so mm-hmm. that's so that's you know we're not getting rid of it it's part of us now yep. uh, that doesn't worry me but what does worry me is what happens in my dna doing what it's supposed to be doing, keeping me alive and, and replicating. What happens down the road 15, 20 years from now because of the spike protein or because of the, the, the you know, whatever instructions are now in my, in my DNA forever? Yeah. The long-term side effects that we don't know, that worries me because it's still unknown. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, that's like one of the big criticisms of this vaccine is that it's not a vaccine. Right. It's a, uh, I, I mean... You know, I sa- I feel like I sound like a crazy QAnon person. Although, I-, I would like to point out, Donald Trump pushed hard for the vaccine. Okay, you've got all these people uh, who are anti, or no, the people who are pro-vax, and they're like, all these Trump supporters don't want to get vaccinated. Trump told, I mean, the-, the vaccine is like a Trump project. You know, right, right. And now, I mean, I, I just think that that's worth notice- noting. Um, that all of these people who, if Trump was president, they probably wouldn't be taking it, you know? Uh, uh, sorry, I, I want to I, I share the name of that guy that I referenced from the Weinstein podcast because I feel like I just glossed over that in case anybody wants to see it. Um, the Brett Weinstein podcast that I'm referring to is called COVID, Ivermectin, and the Crime of the Century. The guy that he's on with is a guy named Pierre Corey. So Pierre Corey is a... Uh, uh, medical doctor has been working been working on the pandemic since the very very beginning. Uh, very interesting guy. And you know what he said that uh, about the viruses? Uh, excuse me, about the um, vaccine that was interesting. He said that, and I, I'm just going to paraphrase. He said that um, you wonder why, like uh, the vaccine for like um, measles and mumps and rubella, that that's that vaccine works um, still. It was invented fucking 70 years ago or something, and it works still. Why? Why can you give people the same vaccine and the disease is conquered? 
but the COVID vaccine doesn't conquer the disease. The disease keeps changing and then it doesn't work anymore. Why is that the case? But the, but all these other vaccines are permanent solutions seemingly to these viruses. And he said, because of the, the MRNA uh, vaccine that was created for COVID because of what it, how it works. Um, what it does is it's, it's in the body along with the virus, let's say. And the protection that the um, vaccine, quote unquote, vaccines giving you is an obstacle that the virus now has to get around. Okay. So it, it, it mutates to get around the pressure imposed on it by the vaccine, by the quote unquote vaccine. That's why you're seeing all these variants popping up. Mm. So he, what he's implying is it's because of the vaccine that we have the variants. We don't have that problem with other vaccines because they they work differently they're a different type of vaccine and so when everybody said there'll be herd immunity and you know everyone just needs to get the virus and Fauci is making or everyone just needs to get the vaccine rather that Fauci's arguing um, that what that would actually do is be as uh, if everybody got the vaccine would be the, uh, an even stronger like impulse for the virus or pressure evolutionary pressure for the virus to continue to to change so we're, that just means more variants yep. that that might mean that the virus gets weaker and doesn't affect us as as as, as much or it might mean that it, it, we create some super MRSA version or whatever yeah you know um i don't know what, what were you, you look like you had something to say there i don't remember what it was Fuck. um but i mean i just i don't know man I, I'll just say to kind of close out that getting it didn't make me any less skeptical of all of this. I am still, and you know, I feel like uh, there are some people who are like, oh, bet you wish you had the vaccine now. Nope. I have no desire to have it. That's the thing is now I'm even, I'm even, I have an even more difficult time Imagining getting the vaccine, knowing that the people who have the, the have had the virus and then get the vaccine are the ones that get the most sick, you know. So they're they're the ones that have the kind of the worst response re- reaction to the vaccine. And now that I've been exposed, if I have to get the vaccine, I'm like less likely to want it because now there's there's a higher chance I'm going to have negative consequences Fucking from I. it. And and the studies have all said that. Well, they've said two things. They've said that the protection you get from the virus and the from getting the virus and the protection you get from the vaccine are comparable and they've also said that getting the having the actual antibodies is actually better no one has said that the vaccine protection is better than actually having antibodies yeah i saw this dude on twitter earlier saying um that natural immunity is a myth that there's no such thing as natural immunity oh, okay and he's a doctor he's a fucking doctor <sighs> Uh, so, uh, you know, like I said, this experience has not made me any less skeptical. I, I think that <clears throat> these people trying to pass this off as some kind of really dangerous virus, they're either stupid, which I know is a lot of people. I get that. A lot of dumb fucking people out there. Um, but a lot of their having had this now it makes me understand that there's a there's got to be a significant portion of these people who are doing this and i mean i've been skeptical of this the entire time but they're making people paranoid like this for a reason correct correct and why is it that that all of the public attention 
is about prevention through a vaccine. Mm -hmm. There has been zero public talk, except for the negative stuff with Trump and uh, hydroxychloroquine back back in the beginning. There's been zero talk about looking for things to help people who get it feel better. Yeah. Or get better. And anytime somebody... Treatment is what we call that. And anytime somebody does bring up some sort of treatment, they're made out to be fucking crazy. So why is that? Why do you think there's only one acceptable treatment and it's a vaccine? And we're not, we're not talking about anything else on purpose. Mm-hmm. And whenever somebody does, they get completely lambasted and turned into a clown mm-hmm. so, that we all, so that we all brush them off. You see, go ahead. I just wanted to say, going back to my, the episode, uh, the Don Lemon episode and the, and the monk debate episode, that's a straw man. Oh, yeah. You know, that's, a, that's diversion. Yep. That's, an appeal to, that's an appeal to emotion. There's all the fucking logical fallacies coming out of the, of the mouths of the, of the mouthpieces of the fucking government. Yep. Oh, boy. It's disturbing. I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. Super, it's super disturbing. Guys, you have to, you must listen to that episode of the Brett Weinstein podcast that I just referenced. You absolutely must. It's super interesting, and if for no other for no other reason than both of those guys believe that ivermectin is the is the is the solution to reopening the world, and that it's cheap, and that there are zero shortages of it right now. That that there are places that are using it successfully, and that it would allow us to reopen and. One of one of the guys talking, Brett Weinstein, is a is a, a PhD biologist. The other guy talking is the guy who came up with the standard of care for COVID today that we're using today, which is uh, I think they say they say in the podcast it's um, uh, was it anti-inflammatories and anyway uh, uh, blood thinners maybe I, I can't remember but there's a standard of care that's being used today that this guy created yeah he's not a, he's not a loon he's the guy who came up with the standard of care it's crazy you got I anything mean, you got anything else on this um because I got I got a, re- a related item but we, you know we can no you can go ahead it just go back to the lab leak this was something that I wanted to talk about it's another crazy idea that I had, along with the lines of uh, COVID made everybody immortal, um, <laughs> which I still think is an interesting idea. Um, all right, so do you remember growing up how the opinions that the average American had of communism and of China was? We, we looked at like the Soviet Union and the chi- Chinese communism as... You know, like the axis of evil. They were the they were the they were the bad guys. They were the guys that were oppressing their people. They were they were the guys that were you know responsible for millions and millions of of deaths of their own of their own citizens. All that sort of thing. Yep. And the the idea of this sort of thing happening in 1960, where there's a, a lab leak in China and there's some global pandemic and there's reason to believe that maybe the Chinese were responsible. Can you imagine the way the the United States and the average person would have would have um, taken that news, th- thinking that the people who poisoned the world are these evil communist dictators um, that don't let their that don't let their children have more than one kid and kill all the female babies? Like that's what we thought of the Chinese in 1980. That's what we thought. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's that's wrong or right. I'm just saying the public opinion of 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 China as a as a country and as a government was bad. It couldn't get any more bad unless you were Stalin. 
You yeah. couldn't get any more bad. And today, this this has happened. We have this reason to believe that the Chinese are responsible for this. And instead of sa- sanctioning them like we do with Iran and North Korea and saying, hey, the Chinese are going to have to pay the, the bill for the world's medical debt now because you cause this problem. It's spread across the whole world. It's, it's costing trillions and trillions of dollars. The, the people who let this slip, the irresponsible, you know, evil communist scientists in their dark dungeons that did this, they, you know, they're, you know, you're on the hook for making this right. That's how we would have handled it in 1980. Mm-hmm. We would have pointed the fingers at the bad guy and said, you're not getting away with this. In 2021, we are pretending for two years now that it wasn't a leak. We're continuing to give aid to, to them. We're not sanctioning them at all. Um, I, I just wanted to bring this up. And I wonder what your thoughts are between had this happened in the 50s or 60s and it happening today and the way that the people see it mm-hmm. and the way that the government is dealing with it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's hard to say. I, I think on some level it's hard to say what is a better scenario because, I mean, back then I feel like that's like a, a, a recipe for a war. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh Back then, you got the people that's like drawing a line in the sand, you know, those kind of guys. Yep. Um, I feel like that's just, uh, you know, ripe for a war. Uh, but then you have what's going on today, and it's like the people that we used to be criticizing in the, the 50s, they were better at playing this political game, and now they are in charge here too. Right. So that, that's what I was wondering, like, because like, there's one perspective where it's like, hey, if we hold China's uh, foot to the fire, or whatever the expression is, if we do that, then we upset this economic relationship we have with them, which is really important. It's like, we don't want to rock the boat because there's too many businesses, there's too many sales, there's the supply chain, there's way too much that we rely on China for, that if we make enemies of them, it's going to upset a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. And that makes perfect sense. But you also have to say... Um, if that's what you're afraid of, uh, like you're going to avoid holding China's holding China to the fire because you're afraid of the economic impact, and it kind of makes it seem like you're being bullied by China in that situation. That you're kowtowing down to them and letting them letting them quote get away with this terrible global you know catastrophe mm-hmm. because you're afraid of losing some profitability you're afraid of the business relationships that you know it's like it, there's a way of looking at that that's very slimy and gross yeah but then there's this other other way of looking at it which i wonder what you think about which is that in the 50s and 60s we were not um allies with china in any in any way we were just opening up trade relationships with china back then I, maybe it was even the 70s when that happened i don't remember um but uh but we're definitely the the party that's in power is definitely more um, accepting of of communism. So, like the progressives and the and the I want to say far left Democrats, but basically the Democrats now in general and mo- and, 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 and many too. of the Republicans. Right? Yeah, many of the Republicans um, that they deep down are 
communist. They're, yeah. they're deep down there. I don't want to say communist like I'm labeling them and just brushing them off. What I mean is they're people that literally believe in redistribution. They literally believe in centralized control of the economy. Um, they literally want those things and, yeah. think, and think that they would be good and beneficial. So there's a part of me that thinks we, we aren't pointing the finger at China because because. We, we are China because we because we now consider ourselves to be more allies, you know, ideologically with China than with Great Britain and France and Germany and all the countries that you know used to be great allies of ours. Yep. That we ideologically now feel like we're closer to the Chinese communists than we are to the free world. Mm-hmm. So why are we why are we going to point fingers at our allies? Basically, you know, have you heard about? Um Neoconservatism and its Trotskyist roots. No, but let's hear it. I mean, I can't break it down that well, that you know in that great a detail. But basically, uh, you know who Bill Crystal is? Uh, the actor? No, not Bill. <laughs> but that guy's great. But this guy, Bill Crystal, is a. I mean, he's a neocon fuckhead. He's like before Trump, he was a Republican. I mean, I get. I think he would probably still say he's a Republican, but. Um, before Trump, he was like a George W. Bush neocon, good old fashioned neocon. Yep. And uh, then Trump came along, and he, you know, he was an anti-Trumper, just like pretty much all neocons are. Um, and but his dad, Irving Crystal, um, he's like you know the father of you know like one of the leading people in modern neoconservatism. Okay. And they all come out of like a trot- a Trotskyist communist tradition. Interesting. Yeah. And a lot of the ideas, I mean, you know, like Trotsky, he wanted like a global communist, you know, like a, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And you think about what these neocon people are trying to do. I mean, it's kind of that, you know, like you were talking about uh, how we've slowly become China. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And like, these are the people, these are the people who have been leading the thought of the like, I mean, you think about a guy like uh, uh, Old One Eye. I can't remember his name. Oh, Mr. Uh, Patch. Oh, geez. Uh, I can't remember. Crenshaw. Crenshaw. Dan, Dan Crenshaw. Crenshaw. Yeah, Fuck yeah. that guy. Um, you just, I mean, these are the people who are directing like that type. You think of somebody like John McCain, you know? Hallelujah, that guy's burning in hell. Fuck that guy. Uh, I mean,. The guy never saw a war he didn't like. They want to. They want to make the world into democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and I feel like that's like straight out of that's Trotsky. You know. Yeah, yeah. That's interest. That's an interesting way of putting it. So I kind of feel like the progressives on the left um, weaponize that instinct in the conservatives for their own benefit. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, it's like the the best way to create a social. Uh, revolution is to disturb the order is to go in there and disturb the order so if you can point the finger and sick the dogs on the countries you don't like and cause a bunch of chaos um, the government's fall that's what we saw that during the Arab Spring you know we saw that in South America you know all through the 60s 70s and 80s Um, you know that's what happens you go in there you shake things up and the government's fall and then you can put 
you can put in your puppet or you can you can cr allow the revolution to to uh, you know reformulate that order that's what's happened in Afghanistan with the Taliban right now mm -hmm. and those places are ripe for communist revolution oh yeah those are the places where it can most easily happen so you can see how you can see how if the progressives maybe on both sides but let's say on the left how they could um, use people's emotions conservative people's emotions to get them all revved up and brother and you know like Hulk Hogan in support of the war and you know you know you just you just give them a righteous cause and you point them in the right direction and oh, yeah. you take off the leash you know and that we're we're out we're out there doing our patriotic conservative thing and thinking we're we're doing what's what's right you know for the, you know from a conservative perspective yep. and the left is just sitting there going Keep creating, keep creating chaos. Absolutely. Keep creating chaos, and and you know this is going to give us opportunity that, for that for communist like revolution. That, that sounds like something that I would say. Keep going with the chaos. <laughs> yes, I love it. Um, and I think, you know, we were to you had messaged me uh, earlier in the week about Biden. You know, them drawing up articles uh, yeah, of impeachment yep. against Biden. Yep, and you know, I think. If they go down that road, and I think they're likely to, honestly, I kind of think if we're just going to keep doing this this president-Congress system, uh, you know, pretending that it's, you know, what we say it is, I feel like it's just going to be the new normal. I feel like every every president who gets brought in is going to get impeached, you know, that's, uh, I just feel like that's the trend we're going down. Yeah, yeah I, I struggle with that. Because yeah. you're right, this that whole tit for tat thing, it, it won't end well. It's actually kind of embarrassing already. Yeah, like the fact that our professionals at the highest level are like petty, pet, children. calling each other names yeah. and like you know tattletaling. Then I'm, I'm going to impeach you, and I'm going to impeach you back. Yeah. Fucking ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely ridiculous. Um, but if we don't do it, and I say we like I represent the conservative side of the argument or something. Yeah, yeah. But if conservatives don't do it if they don't sink to the level of the liberals the problem is that the population is more convinced by the appeal to emotion that that works and the liberals use it to their advantage so if the conservatives don't do it they miss out on the low hanging fruit oh, yeah. which is all the dumb people actually it's all the it's all the just the people that are that are going to uh, the gullible people that are going to believe any argument that sounds good from an attractive person on television sure um <clears throat> i think I mean, I just think that you're right. They definitely... I don't think the Republicans have any option. They have to be doing this. Um, because, like, the perception of the Republicans... The, the, the perception the Republicans, like, the Republican base has of themselves mm -hmm. is uh, we're not going to do... We're not going to behave like those Democrats, those Democrats... And it's gotten you here where you don't own the culture anymore. You're fucked. You're done. Do you, do you remember when Obama was running the first time and Glenn Beck was talking about all the things that would have worked in terms of besmirching Obama's, like, character? He was talking about the connections to, um, to you know, uh, the Islamic religion in, his, in Kenya and h the pictures of him wearing the traditional garb and all deep, deep, deep in with his connections about the, com the communist uh, people oh, yeah. from, from, his, from college and, you know, Ayers. his connection with, with Bill Ayers and Van Jones and, you know, all that sort of thing, um, that the conservatives were too 
high-minded, you might say, um, which is silly, I, but you know what I mean. They thought it was beneath them yeah. during that election to bring any of that up. It didn't come up in the debates. There wasn't in any of the nasty commercials that we, you saw. It di- You didn't see it in the mainstream because the conservatives didn't stoop to the level of the Democrats. They lost. Yep. And that was their mistake. 100%. But I'm, I'm still torn about whether it's the better, what's the best thing for them to do. Yeah. Well... I think that they should just go ahead and do it. I mean, I think on a pragmatic level, they might as well just do it because, like I said, you're losing. Republicans are losers. And what did it take for the Republicans to win a little bit? Donald Trump, who was willing to stoop down to their level, you know? You're right. Uh, That being said, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of it either, although I do think it's entertaining. Um, But... One way that I definitely am a fan of it is that I think eventually it will start to erode people's confidence in the system. And mm. that's exactly what I want. Anything yeah. that we can do, like like I said when you you text me about the, the impeachment, I feel like the Joker in the Dark Knight. <laughs> Just chaos. Just whatever we can do to have shit burning and like making people realize that this is all stupid. That's why I'm I'm all for it. So, so I, w- I want to point something out here. It just keeps flashing in my mind, um, and it's like this idea of the taking the noble road mm-hmm. and just losing and losing. Oh yeah, you, you're just the noble loser. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, like, if you take the high road and you just keep getting you just keep getting burned by the cheaters and the liars and the manipulators, and you just keep being just upstanding and just getting life just beating you and beating you and beating you. And I, I thought to myself. This isn't the case today necessarily, but when I when I first got into politics, it was the case. That's the Libertarian Party. Oh God! In, yeah. in, the, in the early two thousands, the Libertarian Party was the principled party. Every argument was in in lockstep with the other one. There's no there's no room to get in there. It was tight. It was it was glorious, and they would go out there and they would argue things nobody cared about, and nobody was else was arguing, and they made solid points about economics and. Nobody listened to them, and they got one percent of the vote. One percent of the vote. Yep. You know, they were the noble losers. Yeah. You know, and and I I, you're, I think you're right, man. It's as sad as it makes me. It does no good to be the noble loser. Yeah. Golly, man, that's sure. really sucky that yep. the world is like that. Yep. I think uh, I think that is still largely the Libertarian Party. To be honest with you, I think that Dave Smith is trying to. Like, I don't think he has any real idea that he's going to be president of the United States, you know. But I think that, it, and I think he said this much, uh, his idea is just to go on there and get people talking about shit that otherwise is not going to come up, you know. Yeah. You have uh, the Republicans and the Democrats who are not going to bring any of it up for sure. And then you bring these uh, these third-party candidates in who are just like basically Republicans. I mean, you know, like, you know, Joe Jorgensen, she's not basically a Republican. She's got way better ideas than any of them. But as far as how she's playing the game, she's basically a Republican or a Democrat, right. you know? Yep. Uh, and I think that Dave Smith maybe uh, can take, I think he could learn a lot from Trump. And I think that he'd be a good person to, you know, to to take those lessons and be be more effective with them than Trump was. The the idea of watching Dave Smith in 
a debate with Donald Trump and Joe Biden or whoever the Democrats decide to run, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, hopefully, um, the idea of seeing Dave Smith in the mix and just imagining it play out is so entertaining. It's so yeah. desirable. It's like when there's a big fight coming up, it's like, hey, John Jones is coming back. It's like, that's how excited I am about the idea of Dave Smith being in that debate. So you have to like temper your expectations because the chances of like Dave Smith being in a debate with, oh, oh, yeah. so it's like not going to happen. You know? uh, oh, oh, I know. It's a fan. It's a fantasy. Uh, so, I mean, basically it's going to be like him doing things that he's able to do because he's you know, got some internet popularity. It's like go on Joe Rogan, which is huge, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, can you imagine someone like Dave Smith? Can you imagine the, com- the commentator with the, with the curated question is going to say something like, tell us about something or other, uh, your, your opinion on Black Lives Matter, Antifa, whatever, whatever topical talking point that they're going to want to divide us on. That's the question that's going to be asked. And they're going to let Trump say his spiel. They're going to let Biden say his spiel. They're going to get to Dave Smith, and Dave Smith's going to talk about another question. Yeah. He is not going to answer this, the question that's, that they're trying to like wrap around the argument to contain it. He's going to say, "How about we talk about inflation? How about we talk about what's happening with the currency?" Yep. You know, it's going to. You know, he's going to say, "How about we? How about we stop answering these softball questions that don't mean shit?" That's you know, that's going to make us all uh, bitter and angry at each other when we leave here. Instead, let's talk about some real shit, and that's going to be, that's going to be the fucking stick in in the spokes of that whole situation, and it will be dynamite. And that's what I would love to see, man. I would love to see it too. Hopefully, it happens. Hopefully. I mean, I think it will on some level. Um, if it did, if that did happen, just hypothetically, mm-hmm. I don't think any significant number of liberals will be persuaded to vote uh, for Dave Smith because of his good sense. I, I think the same people that were going to vote Democrat are going to vote Democrat anyway. What I'm curious about is how, what do you think the percentage of conservative-minded people or libertarian conservatives that listen to that debate and for the first time hear these arguments they've never heard before that are making some serious sense mm-hmm. and revealing the nonsense the other two people are, are have to bring to the table. How many of those people do you think are persuaded to vote libertarian instead of instead of uh, Republican? Um, you know, that's a good question. Do you agree that that the Democrats that won't that you don't expect a, uh, any significant shift in the Democrat vote? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's closer to the truth. I mean, maybe some, you know, like there, you, you got those kind of Bill Maher Democrats who are like, but I've, I've never met a Democrat that became a libertarian. I've never met one. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, there are a few of them on, on the old Twitters. (laughs) They, uh, they tend in my experience, they tend to be more of these like libertarian socialists, Mm. you know? Which, whatever. Well, I mean, I mean, as long as you're not forcing me, you guys can play your socialist games. That's fine. It just, it just seems to me like, as a, as a liberal, if you hear the libertarian motto, which is, hey, you know, we should all be able to do whatever we want, so long as we're not hurting anyone else. Like, that's it. A liberal, that should make, that should resonate with liberal. Mm-hmm. It should resonate with everyone, by the way. But it should absolutely resonate with liberal. That's kind of the whole fucking definition of being liberal, too. It's just that that's just that that's not what liberals are anymore. Yeah. It's like we have to have libertarians because liberals aren't what they are, aren't what they're supposed to be. For sure. I'm getting off track. Classical liberals, man. Mm. Where are you guys? Where the fuck are you guys, man? Somewhere else. 
boy, I, I wish we could play. I wish we could. <laughs> I wish we could play our Green Ranger flute. Our, I'm making a Power Ranger reference for the people who were alive in the early '90s and we were watching them. I wish I could just play my Power Ranger flute and call all of the classical liberals out of the wherever they're hiding, out of their hidey holes, and yeah. just call them forth into the world. Where are you guys? You got anything else on this? No, not really. All right, so I, I got I, I have a little intermission thing I want to I want to talk about. So last time we got some literature from the Church of Scientology, we, I decided to talk about it. You remember that episode we did? It all worked out well. Hard to forget. Um, so I just want to remind the audience: we get mail at the house from the Church of Scientology because my wife's aunt and uncle, who live with us, used to live in California, and. 25 years ago, had a run-in with the Church of Scientology. They got her name, I think, and her address, and they just kept track of her. And she doesn't even live there anymore. She's moved several times, you know. And we still get literature in the mail from the Church of Scientology. They will not, will not stop. They will not stop. Buggers. They are persistent buggers. So since we last met, um, talking about the literature from the Church of Church of Scientology, I got two new pieces in the mail. Um, I don't know, man. I just thought I would mention that I got two more pieces. And I kind of feel like maybe we didn't used to get it this often, but we talk about it on the podcast. Now we're getting more literature. Did we bring this into reality? I'm wondering if there's somebody out there who's actually... What if we become Scientologists, bro? What if that's half of our followers are Scientologists already? Oh, man. Fuck. All right, so guys, one of them came, and it's just not not nearly as cool as the other one, but it, it's like a... It reminds you of something that your kids might bring home from elementary school for like a fundraiser. It's all these books that you can buy, and some of them are not cheap. $125 for this book called The Science of Survival. Um, $350 for this one called uh, Thought, Emotion, and Effort. These are all books written by um, L. Ron Hubbard, and so it's just like a catalog. It's like buy these books, $125, $150. Motherfucker, look you at know all what? these books. Do you know what L stands for? I do not. I don't either. Lord? Lord Ron Hubbard. <laughs> I wouldn't I would not abbreviate that if that's what it was. All right. <clears throat> yeah, this is uh Isn't that what it looks like? Like the scholastic book fair thing and all of the books were written by L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, it does look like that. It's uh, the cover some of these covers are pretty interesting. They all of the covers there, there's literally the hundred of them, guys, and all of the covers look like 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 this, like a sci-fi book cover, like it's supposed to grab your attention at the airport. Dude, some of these kind of remind me of, uh, like the covers of Atlas Shrugged and, um, oh yeah, what's the other one? The Fountainhead. Uh, like, like these here kind of have that vibe to me. These over here, oh yeah, they, they it's definitely got a Randian vibe to it. And on the back of this piece, it's like a trifold piece. And on the back, there's just like this weird golden, like, the, <clears throat> do you remember the, the movie The NeverEnding Story? Yeah. It's one of my favorites, still is. Um, it's got that, that, that aura, and it's got that weird, like, inter- intertwined snake-looking thing that's, like, made of bronze. It, that's what it looks like to me. It's just got this seal on, on the envelope. It's it looks definitely like, got, like, a <clears throat> Mason-ish vibe to it. Like a Mason-ish vibe, yeah, yeah. yeah. The other piece I got from the Church of Scientology, this is from the same place that the other one came from, the uh, Advanced Organization of Los Angeles. The Advanced Organization. Aola. This one's got the same, in the middle, it's got the same um, fucking uh, Uncle Sam thing Dr. Seuss. telling you that there are tax benefits involved with uh, with joining and coming to their fucking place. 
Um, and it's just it's just another really awesome thing. But it, it, they put in really big, bold letters this quote from L. Ron Hubbard. I just want to read it because it's ridiculous. Here we go. Remember, this is coming as an advertisement piece for somebody who's not already a Scientologist. And this is how it reads. This is what this is this this is the quote that they chose to put on a full page of this brochure. This is the one of all of these 500 books this guy wrote, of all the shit he said, this is the sentence that they chose to put in the advertisement. A clear is rehabilitated in his dynamics, and these will be found to be strengthened immeasurably. He is better able to solve the problems of his environment and has available to him more circuits for such computation. He is able to control the organism and its various functions and is an integrated unit he is rational and constructive. His self-determination has been rehabilitated to the final degree. L. Ron Hubbard. Okay. What in the absolute fuck, Kyle? I don't know, man. The only part of that that makes any sense that might, might sound like it would be a good thing is this. He is better able to solve the problems of his environment. That sounds like it would be good. Yeah. The rest of it can fuck off. Gobbledygook. Gobbledygook. All right. Church of Scientology. Is that Kamala on the front? I think it's, I think it's uh, Kamala. <laughs> I think it's, she, she's got this Kamala of clear. Yeah. All right. All right. I could see her being a Scientologist. Oh, for sure. Creepy bitch. Creepy bitch. Um, do you have anything on your plate that you want to talk about? Because the other one that I have is, I could like, well, just do you have anything first is what no, I'm saying. not really. I'm being polite. Okay. So, all right. I told you guys before, um, we got a kind of a full house here, and uh, um, some of the people that live here are particularly conservative, uh, big Trump fans, and it's fun to have those sorts of people around, just to have that perspective. It's 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 a little bit like, like my dad is this way, because he's also very conservative. It's a little bit like a cartoon, um, and it makes like my dad is such a character and part of his character is being conservative. Yeah. And it's, uh, that's what I mean. It's something that you can enjoy about it. Even if you, if you, if you don't agree with it all, you can enjoy it about him. So anyway, um, so they're very conservative and, uh, they have uh, a little bit of a library up there of these conservative type books. This one, American Marxism was specifically given to me and, and I was told, uh, to, to talk about it on the podcast. All right. So I don't know, I'm not familiar with Mark Levin, but apparently he's a famous man. Oh, yeah. Writes lots of books. He's on television, radio. radio. Yeah. Um, so you're familiar with Mark Levin. Yeah. I know, uh, I, yeah. Did you know this book? I No, I don't know that book. All I right. know Mark Levin. I, I mean, I don't know Mark Levin super well, um, but I've definitely seen some Mark Levin stuff. Not a huge fan. Not a huge fan? Yeah. Why? I mean, Why? What is it about him? Just too conservative in the wrong way? I mean, he's just he's just one of these guys who, uh, you know, he's fine with his 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 kind of government interventionism, you know. Mm. Um, but you know, to be honest with you, I would take Mark Levin over like uh, uh, what's who's the lady the who Maddow <laughs> Rachel Maddow yeah. yeah Rachel Maddow yeah if I have to hang out with R- Mark Levin or Rachel Maddow, it's easily going to be Mark Levin. Rachel Maddow, she single-handedly turned me against the Democrat Party. Yeah. Single-handedly. Because when I was young and impressionable, and I tried to turn on MSNBC and see what the opinion people said on that side of the argument, she came across to me as so disgusting. She was always saying nasty things about people in in a way that was smug, Mm -hmm. in a way that was so 
terribly smug that it turned my stomach. And every time I turned her on, she was the same character. She was just, you know, I'm God. I know everything. I'm going to laugh at these people in their terrible, you know, uh, quotes and their terrible thoughts and opinions. And I'm just, it was a lot like watching Bill Maher and, and Religious. It was, it was like cruel and, and coming from the kind party, right? It was this type of cruelty and arrogance coming from the party that's supposed to be there to help the downtrodden. It was such a hypocrisy that that night after night, I listening to Rachel Maddow, and I was just like, "Fuck this whole people and the and the fucking horse they they rode in on." No way, you guys are not kind. You guys don't care about people. You guys are you guys are like the terrible church people that are that are there to wear, wear their best clothes and to show everybody how awesome they are. Yeah. That's what you are, Rachel Maddow. You're terrible, and you single handedly turned me against your your party. I want you to know that. Um, so if you're listening, if you're listening, Rachel, <laughs> so that, that being said, what do you think about this idea? American Marxism? Um, all it based, I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me aside from whatever I'm making it mean, you know, because I don't know what, I have no idea what this book is about yeah. except for the fact that it's <laughs> called American Marxism. Does it pique your curiosity? Uh, yeah, okay. sure. It does, it does me too. It, what does it make you think? It makes me think of Woodrow Wilson, actually. What does it make you think of? Yeah, that's good. I mean, yeah. Woodrow Wilson. I mean, the other, uh, who's the other one? Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, that's the Fucking guy. Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I want to do. Um, I did not read this entire book. I'm going to, and I'll probably decide to talk about some of this um, like on other podcasts. Yeah. I didn't want to just do a whole podcast about this book. Uh, mostly because I haven't had a chance to get through it all the way, and I thought it would be more fun to do it with you. And what happened was I got through like two chapters of it, and I had some stuff I want to talk about. You see all these little pieces of paper sticking out. These ones were interesting to me because it surprised me. I started reading like the second chapter a little bit, and the way he was just... Mark Levin is he's a smart man because he lets the people who he's bashing speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. He uses lots of quotes, so he doesn't have to say things about them. He lets them say it about them, themselves yeah. from their own mouths. And of course, he's selecting those passages, but it's like, here, I'm going to give you this rope, and you, I'm just going to let you hang yourself with Straight it. from the horse's mouth. <clears throat> and so, so he does it in a very interesting way. And he talks about postmodernism, and I, that's the first part that's really interesting that I want to talk about. But the second part surprised me. It was, and it wasn't even a point he was making, but it was... All of those connections that you and I have talked about many times about how politics is taking the place of religion. And he starts making those points. And again, he's not trying to make that argument, but I was just like noticing it, noticing it. And I was like, oh, that's going to be good. So I want to get to there. So I'm just going to, I know this is one of those awful situations where I've got quotes that you can't read. And then, you know, but it'll be good enough. All right. So I'm going to do my best here. I don't know if we'll get to all this, but, you know, let's try. Look at this, man. Fuck. All right, so here we go. So in the f- ad, you know in the kind of beginning here, he says this. He's talking about communism, obviously. In the it's, beginning, it's called it's called American communism, and he says, Marx's insistence that labor alone creates value is also incorrect. If that were the case, the third world would not be the third world; it would be flourishing. So that that I thought was super interesting. So Karl Marx, obviously, you know, this was about the the, pe- labor, the, theory the, la- the, la- the labor theory of value. So it's the labor versus the capital. The people that bring the capital, the build that build the factories and and pay the paychecks of all the f- people that they couldn't make any money 
if it weren't for the laborers. So it's actually the, the factory workers in that factory that are the most important. And the person who built the, built the factory and hired the workers, he's really just kind of of minor importance. To Marx, the power is with the, is with the people and the laborers. And uh, so this is interesting. He says, Marx's insistence that labor alone creates value is incorrect. If that were the case, the third world would not be the third world. It would be flourishing. So imagine a third world country. That doesn't, working your ass off. Doesn't it? You don't have the infrastructure. You don't have the uh, high-tech stuff. But, like, in India, what do you got? In China, what do you got? Laborers. Yep. You got you got so many people with nothing to do but but labor. And if that was the value that could be unlocked, then India would be the richest country in the world. Yeah. That's amazing. Nobody ever... I never heard that before, so I thought that was pretty fucking cool. That is pretty good. And it is kind of a... It's kind of a... a an injury to this idea that uh, this communist idea, you know? Yep. Uh, Next, he says, furthermore, all labor is not alike. True that. Nobody who supports communism ever talks about that. Yep. Everything is supposed to be like equal. Right. You know, you're all important. Everyone's as important as everyone else. Right. It can't can't be a hierarchy of, of labor, can there? Yeah. Because then we're in the same capitalist problem that we're in, in, you know, today. So we can't escape it through communism if there's if there's a, you know, a, a different value in different labor. Yeah. Jesus, man. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just seems kind of self-evident that regardless of what you're making the, the determination against, like the criteria that you're basing the determination against, like a doctor is more valuable than I'm trying to think of like the least valuable thing. I don't know what I I mean, you know, like uh I want to say fast food worker, but that just seems like kind of mean. I mean look, they're making food for people. How about a um how about a, a ticket terror at like a at like a movie theater? Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh yeah, or like a uh, uh an IRS agent. Ooh, <laughs> like an IRS agent. Yeah. Yes, yep. Uh, but yeah, I mean for some reason, the doctor is just more valuable, you know? I just want to point out, Kyle and I both tore tickets before as, for yeah, a job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back um, in the day. All right, so here's another one in the same vein. He says, in addition, labor alone does not determine the value of a product or service. Obviously, it contributes to it. However, consumers play the major role. They create the demand. And depending on the demand, business and labor provide the supply. In other words, capitalism caters to desires and needs of the masses. So what communism is supposed to do, its goal, is supposed to deliver the necessities of life to the masses, right? Mm -hmm. And he's saying that's exactly what capitalism does. Mm -hmm. The thing that communism wants is exactly what capitalism already does. Mm -hmm. It's It's the power, the force, that drives the production of the things that people need, Right? Because that's what we're willing to pay for. Yep. That's already do being done. I thought that was great. Uh, anything on that? Uh, no, not okay. really. All right, here we go. This is a longer bit. Marxism does not tolerate the competition of ideas or, or political parties. I want you guys to think about this in today's America. Think about that. Try to place, when I'm talking about Marx here, try to, try to place this in today. Here it goes. Marxism does not tolerate the competition of ideas or political parties. 
These efforts include changing the voting system to ensure Democratic Party control for decades, which has, which has as its purpose the eradication of the Republican Party and political competition. Attempting to eliminate the Senate filibuster rule so all manner of laws can be imposed on the country without effective de- deliberation or challenge. Threatening to breach separation of powers and judicial independence by plotting to pack the Supreme Court with like-minded ideologues. Planning to add Democratic seats to the Senate to ensure its control over that body. Using tens of billions in taxpayer funds to subsidize and strengthen core parts of the Democratic Party base, such as unions and political activists. And facilitating massive illegal immigration, the purpose of which is to, among other things, alter the nation's demographics and eventually add significantly to the pro-democratic party voting base. These actions and designs are evidence of an autocratic, power-hungry, ideological movement that seeks to permanently crush its opposition and emerge as the sole political and governmental power. What do you think of that? I mean, it just seems like he's kind of a... Reading the headlines, you know. He's definitely reading the headlines, but but to put all of them in one paragraph like that, I think is pretty interesting, because you do see the arguments. You know, these are all one-off arguments that are happening. But when you put them all together, we remember them talking about um, trying to add seats to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and, you, and we know the reason for that is to because again, that's the end-all, be-all of judicial authority in the country. And if you can make it, if you can add more seats to it that are that are democrat then the democrats can control the ju- the judiciary that's huge yeah. um they did the same thing trying to add seats to the senate so that they could get an advantage and uh and tons and tons of government money flowing to um democrat uh causes of all sorts um to that far outweigh those flowing to any conservative uh oh, yeah. causes so you've got what what all of these different examples of manipulation of the system that are being done mostly by Democrats, although they're really progressives and progressives are on both sides. So that's even more scary to me. But I just think it's interesting to see somebody put it all together and say, look at how the system is being scammed. It's happening with voting. It's happening with the structure of the Senate and the judiciary. Uh, it's happening with a, you know, a one-sided contr- monopoly, monopoly of, of government money. Um, I just thought that was interesting because it's, it's terrifying, but it's all true. Yep. I watched all of these arguments happen oh, yeah. one by one. I watched it. Yep. In the, like the last year. In the last year. <laughs> oh, that's another thing that I thought about the other day is that the next election is not until 2024. That's three years away, man. And that means everything that we've seen under Biden's administration is like yesterday. Like this, like all of this stuff is just happening all at once, man. Yeah. It's completely crazy. It is very weird. Golly. All right, here we go. All right. He says, although weaponizing race is not new to the Democratic Party, it is shocking to witness its gr- grotesque rebirth as a political tool. I could not agree more with that statement. Yeah. The fact that race is being used to, to cause political division and animosity between the country, you know, with the goal of affecting the outcome of an election, you have to understand that the politicians are doing that on purpose. And the ones that were supposed to be anti-racism, the left, they're, they're doing it every day, all the time. Yep. And Mark Levin's pointing it out and I cannot disagree. No, hard to. Mm. All right, he goes, 
The truth is that the interests of the Democratic Party come before those of the country. And allegiance to the party is more important than fidelity to the country. It holds these characteristics in common with other autocratic and communist parties throughout the world. Okay, so this is interesting. That part is true. Like, being a patriot uh, when we were kids, that was an honorable thing. Being a patriot today is, well, it's kind of a dishonorable thing. Mm-hmm. It's like if, you're, if, you, if you support the country, it's like you're an imperialist, you're a colonialist, you're a racist, you're something. Yeah. Um, which, I, I mean, I don't fucking understand, but there it is. That, that's, how the, that's how the narrative has changed. Um, nothing, nothing on that. Uh, I mean, I just think that, uh, like, like to be, to be a progressive and to hold the ideas of these kind ideas that, that, you know, of all sorts, that that's more important than being an American. It's like, it's, it's more, it's better for you to hold these ideas that are progressive than it is for you to identify yourself with this idea of America. Yeah. And that's that that when we were kids couldn't couldn't have been more different. Yeah, that's true. It's like flip flopped. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Being a patriot is definitely I mean, to be honest with you, I kind of feel like kind of cringy at people who consider themselves paid. Like, what are you so proud of? You know, like uh, and I feel like a lot of the times they're the the notion of patriotism gets kind of wrapped up in military shit, yeah. which I don't, you know, obviously I'm not a fan of that. So I don't know. I have like a little bit of a cringe relationship with patriotism too. But uh, I definitely think that the criticism that's for what he's talking about in this book is different. It's like criticizing, um, I don't know, kind of like maybe a noble instinct, uh, you know? Yeah. It's like cutting down something that, uh, you know, at the very least, it's like it's not hurting anyone, mm. you know. So, so I, I just got stuck on the thing you said earlier about the connection between patriotism and the military. And it's funny because you're 100% right about that. Yeah. And as soon as you said it, like it just got my, my the wheels in my brain turning. That's also very clearly a weird sort of manipulation. And that comes from the conservative party. It's like the idea of patriotism. There is no reason whatsoever that that should be tied closely to the military. Yeah. The fact that it is like that's like the few the few the proud the marine commercials. That's like propaganda. The, the fact that being a good patriot means supporting the military in war. That's something that we created. That's a narrative that we created. And I remember being eighteen years old and. 9-11 was, just happened, basically. And considering joining the Marines yeah. with my buddy Brian, yeah. and I was, like, seriously considering it. Like, I'm going to go over there and fucking die. Why? Because, because, there, was, because there was this narrative that said uh, that I, to be a good patriot that I should be killing people in another country. Yeah. And I was, like, dumb enough, and it worked on me, right? I was so naive. I was just like, you know... Two, Sign me up. Two, two and two equals six. Give me, give me a gun, sir. Yep. Uh, fuck, man. For sure. And I think that another aspect of that, it's uh, not only is that idea of American patriotism tied to the military, they also do it with, like, cops and firefighters and shit like that, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. And with cops, it's particularly concerning because, you know, like, the right has definitely had like some I think a little bit of an awakening with cops over the last few years um but I think it needs to happen more uh this conservative 
patriot idea that the cops are the good guys needs to go. I mean, the cops are not the good guys. You look at everything that's happening in Australia right now, you think those are the good guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I Those videos from Australia have been, they have been unbelievable. Yeah. I couldn't believe, I could not believe my eyes. But good for those people in Australia. I mean, not not the not the cop that slammed the that slammed the girl against the cement wall for not wearing a mask. But the but the throngs of angry people Fuck that yeah. aren't having that aren't sitting idly by where their freedoms get stripped from them. Oh, those yeah. people are fucking heroes. I'm ready for it here, man. We I think we need we need some of that. Uh, we need more of that going on here. Well, we definitely need more of the federal government being afraid of the people. Fucking We a. definitely need that because those motherfuckers think they can do whatever they want. Yes, they do. And they have been doing whatever they want for yes, a very long time. Yep. We, we, you know what comes to my mind is that picture of those um, like Maori, like tribes people from, uh, from Australia, New Zealand or whatever, yeah. where they do those crazy dances and the haka, the haka yeah. and they fucking all those guttural sounds and screams. Like I just picturing people marching on the white house or, or marching on the Capitol building Man. and just rah, rah, like fucking, it'd be way more intimidating if they all looked like Jason Momoa. Oh yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Just the rock and Momoa out in front. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's great. Oh boy. All right. All right. Let me keep reading here. Um, Back to Levin. Yeah. Okay. He says, Marxism stresses classism over individualism. So this is something Kyle and I talk about a bunch when we talk about collectivism and individualism. It's like looking at people as though we're a group versus as, though, as if we're individuals. So this is what he's saying. Marxism stresses classes over individuals. The individual is dehumanized and is nothing unless he identifies with a group. And that's interesting. It's like the, the single individual is sort of powerless. In a group, they're not, they're not powerless. What he's saying is that... They, that the identity of the person by themselves doesn't really have meaning in communism. It's like your meaning is your, is your attachment to the group. That's how you're powerful. That's how you matter. Not as an individual. As an individual, it's like you're, you're the rogue cancer cell. Yeah. You know, you're just causing problems. You have to get on board. Um, he says, um, and the individuals who make up opposing or non-conforming groups are collectively de- dehumanized, condemned, and loathed as the enemy. So the same thing that communism wants to do to the good guys, the, the, you know, the good comrades, we're going to have a collective identity you know, as a group. We're also going to do that with the enemy. We're going to dehumanize them, call them a group. And that's the powerful thing about, about group identity and collectivism. It's the dehumanizing part. Oh, yeah. So if you're a group, it's just like p- police, defund the police. If you're a group then it's, you know, there's no face, there's no in- individual. We can be as brutal and violent as we want to a group because it's just a symbol. It doesn't mean anything. But, but no, groups are filled with individual people with hearts and feelings and families. Mm-hmm. All right, fuck. Yeah. All right, he says, uh, this, is, this is a trait of American Marxism and the Democratic Party. So he's making the connection there. He says, of course, this formulation is especially seductive to the malcontented, disenchanted, disaffected, and dissatisfied. For them, individual liberty and capitalism expose their own shortcomings and failings, and their difficulty and perhaps inability to function in an open society. Marxism provides a theoretical and institutional framework through which they can project their own limitations and weaknesses onto the system and their oppressors rather than take responsibility for their own real and perceived plight. I mean, Mm -hmm. so I don't know where your mind goes. My mind goes right to Jordan Peterson. So if you got something to say on this. No, no, I want to hear what. So he says, 
like that mindset, this, this group mindset, um, it's more appealing to losers. It's more appe- appealing to people who are, yeah. too, or who are too lazy to try or have tried and failed and have just given up. That those people, uh, there's an appeal to them because what it allows them to do is to, as he puts it, he says, um, he says, through which they can project their own limitations and weaknesses onto the system and their oppressors. So it's not my fault that I failed. It's the system's fault. It's this big overarching cathedral, right, that's holding me down. Yeah. Um, and of course, Jordan Peterson talk, talks about that when he talks about the Columbine shooters and, and the nihilists and why people get to the point where they go into a school and kill people is because the, I, I just I'm like struggling as to I want to use examples, for, but they're like family members. And I'm not sure if I should like talk in bad ways about my family sure. members in a public venue. Sure. But uh, just imagine if you imagine the super progressive type liberals that, you know. Imagine who they are. You know who they are in your life. The ones that I know didn't graduate from high school or, or didn't or tried and, and didn't graduate from college. They don't have they don't have good jobs. They don't have um, they don't have like healthy romantic relationships or any romantic relationships. They don't have um, you know they don't have like dynamic friendships. That um, they're people whose lives um, are terrible in one reason or another. And a lot of those reasons are like self-imposed. They're things that they did that were bad decisions they made that got them to the place that they were in. Not, not entirely, but these are the types of people that come to my mind. Those are the ones that look at the state of their, of their lives. They're the, they're the ones that look at the shit that they have to deal with and think to themselves, it's not my fault. It's, this, it's everybody else. It's the system around me. It's everybody fucking else. Yep. Yeah, I, I definitely, I can see that. So let's burn it down. Let's shoot the school up. It's fucking their fault, not my fault. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, I go on. Importantly, whether one identifies with or is among the class of oppressed is a matter of self-determination and self-actualization. In other words, there are no hard and fast rules. They and their group can define and identify what and whom for them are their oppressors. So what are the rules about who's oppressed and who's, who's the oppressed and who's the oppressor? Do you get to choose? Do you get to decide? Certainly not us, Kyle. We're both white men. Yeah. Certainly not us. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and I go on. The allegedly oppressed become the real oppressors and wield substantial power throughout society and the culture despite their limited appeal and smaller numbers. And they become more belligerent, demanding, and even violent as their appetite for control and revolution grows and must be constantly satiated. So if you look at what's going on, if you look at what happens with all of these movements, whether it be the Me Too movement or the BLM movement or whatever, they just continue to ratchet up in their intensity and their violence and, and until somebody finally swats them on their ass yeah. or until the support, the public support fizzles out. <coughs> um, what do you think of that? I definitely think that it does fizzle out over time. Like these causes... People care, you know, like, it's not like people don't care, but it's like, you can only be like, so pissed off about it for so long, you know? Yeah. And then it just kind of, yep. like, you know, give it two years and something else will come along and it'll get it all flared up again, but they don't like really stick, you know? Yeah. I, I'm just, as you're talking, I'm like remembering 
being like a kid, like like a 13-year-old kid or something, a 14-year-old kid, like having my heart broken for the first time yeah. and feeling that terrible, terrible pain that you never felt before. And it's like you can't even contend with it. It's so bad. It feels like your life is ending. And you cry and you cry and you cry. And then at some point, you fucking cried enough. You can't like, cry anymore. You I can't be here? sad anymore. Yeah. It's like that's that's what happens to in even the worst sorts of situations, you know? Yep. <laughs> All right, anything else? No, I, I have always thought it's weird that like when you have that emotional pain that you can like feel it physically. Oh, yeah. You can like feel like this heaviness in your chest, like a physical feeling. Yeah. Sometimes, it's sometimes it's like a pinching or a burning even yeah. in, in your heart in your middle in your solar plexus you know it's totally and it, it makes you think about like um psychosomatic illness in a different yeah. way it's like pe- that's true people who like have medical symptoms that they cause with their mind and doctors are like i don't know man i don't I, there's, not, I don't, there's nothing wrong with you like yeah doc but i got these blue threads coming out of my skin <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's that called? Morgellons disease. Morgellons, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I have that. <laughs> uh, maybe that's what, maybe that's what we're sick with. But could be. All right, here we go. Many corporatists have simply abandoned capitalism for statism, and support groups like BLM and various radical causes as a way to curry favor, if not partner with political and bureaucratic autocrats to destroy their competition and improve their financial positions. So what he's saying here, he's talking about like like. When corporations jump on these on the bandwagon of these uh, whatever social movements it is, like you know, even like right now, let's say com- uh, companies you know m- doing commercials about getting the vaccines. Like, why is Coca Cola advertising a commercial about if people should get the vaccine? Is Coca Cola selling the vaccine? <laughs> exactly. Jesus fucking Christ. Exactly. But this is what I mean. It's like y- you now have capitalist um, you know tendencies that are that are instead becoming statist tendencies, yeah. where corporations are like kowtowing and kissing the ass of, uh, of, of the government publicly and carrying their message publicly, which has just never happened before that I know of. Yeah. And, uh, and that's being done to look good to the public, but also to, to get to curry favor with the politicians. Like, I'm sure. going to spread your message, but when I need a favor... You fucking come running, boy. And that's what the liberals are supporting Dude, today? It's funny because you have these... Uh, you think of somebody who's like far left, although people who are actually far left are rolling their eyes. Uh, you know, you think of like Antifa as far left, which is a fucking joke. Uh, because anti- Antifa, anti-fascist, they, they scream all of this bullshit about fascism. But then you look at the actual fascism in this country, the marriage between corporations and the state. Uh, and pushing uh, like an ideological, I mean, they 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 very clearly have uh, these corporations have ideas about how they think Americans should be behaving, mm-hmm. and they are manipulating Americans through their lot, you know, vast power that these corporations and the state have. This is fascism, they, but these companies are pushing the mes- message of Antifa. Mm. You know, like the Pepsi is not going to say fuck Antifa. You know what I mean? Right. Um, You're right. It's just, uh, it's fucked. It's it's fucked. It's fucked. It's fucked because it used to be the fucking 
C-SPAN in the newspaper that was that was pushing agenda. Now it's major corporations and Hollywood and everyone. Yep. That should scare everybody listening. Because the message is not coming from a boring guy like Alan Greenspan. It's it's coming from Brad Pitt and, you know, Joe Camel. It's coming from everywhere. Yep. You know, and and it is manipulation. For sure. It's All right. And I'm and I move on. He says, for this new elite, the good of free speech has become invisible because for them, free speech is simply friction, resistance to their goals. The elimination of hate speech is the goal, the unimpeachable good that the openness of free speech prevents. In half a generation, the work of centuries is undone and the levers of tyranny put in place, he says. So this idea of deplatforming people and... Um, and, uh, you know, restricting speech of all kinds, you know, calling it hateful or racist or whatever, that all of that stuff is being done to eliminate free speech. Because if we can successfully put controls on free speech, then we can control what people, the ideas that people hear. Yep. You know? If you can control speech, I mean, you're basically controlling thought because... Basically? I mean, you know... Somebody who needs to hear an idea might just never hear that idea, you know? So, I mean, it's like, I think people think of thought control and they think of it as like, I don't know, like brainwashing. But, I mean, is that not basically what it is? Yeah, because I think of like, I think of like a psychologist holding a pocket watch and, uh, you know, like a pendulum in front of my eyes. Tick, tock, tick, tock. And I'm going to slowly hypnotize you until you're under my control. That's like a, that's like a, cartoonish idea of mind control mind control is way more subtle than that and way more successful than that every single day just look at the marketing and advertising industry oh yeah come on yep you ever watch the show mad men uh i started to and i just stopped i I know i've heard good things um but yeah that show i mean it's just a stupid drama show i mean it's good but uh there is interesting stuff about advertising in there and just, uh, mm. you know, you think about these companies like Pepsi versus Coke. Pepsi wants you to buy more Pepsi. Uh, so they hire, you know, some crack advertising firm, you know. Uh, and a lot of these advertising guys end up working in like politics as well. Oh, yeah. You know, they're just like salesmen. Well, you know, it's, it's like I'll give you an example. So, um, so in the like, uh, I'm just trying. I'm just deliberating about how specific to be. So I'm aware of studies that are done, uh, like marketing type studies that are done, um, to to decide little things that you would consider nuances that you might not think are important, like on a website, the color of the background, oh, yeah. the the size of the text box, you know, the placement of the things, um, and what they found is that. If you make if you make certain things certain colors, if you put them in certain places, if you make them a certain size, you get more people to do this and that on the website. And if you want them to do this and that, you're going to formulate this website to where it, it makes you do those things. Yep. That's the kind of manipulation I'm talking about. It's people think about it behind the scenes, everywhere, all the time, in politics and advertising. When you're trying to figure out how to have an argument with your wife, everybody does it all the time, and it's it's manipulation. And people live their lives as though it's not happening, and that's the type of naivete that I that I feel like I had to climb out of, and I just want other people to see it. I just yeah. want other people to see it, man. 
Okay, so this first this first chapter ends with a Ronald Reagan reference uh, that I'll just throw in here for the sake of doing it. Uh, f- this is Ronald Reagan. The f- <laughs> Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. That's, that's, that's Ronald Reagan's quote, you guys. All right. So that's just the opening chapter of Levin. The rest of this starts to get more interesting because he starts talking about postmodernism. Yeah. Um, anything before we move on to this? So, I mean, a lot of like where I break down with Mark Levin is like that, that like super ideological uh, quote from Ronald Reagan. Like, I don't like Ronald Reagan, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, like, yeah, maybe, did he have some good like boomer con type uh quotes about freedom like these people talk about freedom like they have any fucking idea what freedom is um so that i mean it's just things like that like uh, he's one of these guys it's like ben shapiro you know like ben shapiro says a ton of stuff that i can more or less agree with you know oh yeah but there's always going to be a few issues with ben shapiro and mark levin and people like that that it's like no we're not on the same side you know you know an idea that i never had to struggle with or contend with until now is is this freedom is terrifying oh yeah and people don't admit they're scared first of all so you have a bunch of people on one side of the argument that doesn't want to be free because it's so terrifying the idea of being completely on your own the idea of like anything that happens to you, any any relationships that you form, any any you know purchases that you make have to be negotiated in good faith by you and another stranger or human being, and nobody there to intervene, nobody there to watch to make sure everything goes down right. It's just you. Perfect freedom is so scary because people just want to be taken care of. People mm-hmm. just want to be protected and taken care of. Yep. And uh, and when we grew up to be free. It, it, it went without saying that it was not just a good, it was the ultimate good. It's like, America, freedom is the best. Yeah. Fuck yeah. And there was never an argument. But nobody ever, nobody ever stopped to think, well, what does freedom actually mean? Because it's hard and scary. And are you sure you want it? And the, and the, the way we've been answering that question for the last hundred years is, I'm not sure I want it. You know? Yeah. The country that's supposed to want it, that's that we just keep inching closer and closer to. I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. Yeah, I'm with you. And Uncle Sam's becoming becoming Papa Sam, you know? Oh, for sure. That's that's a good way to put it. Soon Papa Sam is going to become gilded in gold, and we're going to worship. We're going to worship that idol, man. We're getting pretty close. All right. <clears throat> Chapter two is called Breeding Mobs. Starts off like this. Moreover, disparaging and diminishing the successful and accomplished becomes an essential tactic. No one should be better than anyone else, regardless of the merits or value of his contribution. By exploiting human frailties, frustrations, jealousies, and iniquities, a sense of meaning and self-worth is created in the malcontents otherwise happy and directionless uh, otherwise unhappy and directionless life. So this is super interesting. So you, again, we're we're putting ourselves in the uh, in the perspective of somebody who's basically been a failure. They, ne- they, de- they never tried hard enough. Um, you know, 
they always made excuses. They, they never got it done. And so they're, they never accomplished the things they wanted to accomplish. They're angry and bitter, and they, they live like lots of people live in, in this country. And, and he says, he says uh, disparaging and diminishing the successful um, has become an essential tactic. Well, for that person, you're going to look at anybody who's successful, and you're going to look at the hyper-successful. You're going to point your fingers and say, you're the problem. Yeah. You're the reason that I'm, that I'm in this place. You know what's really weird to me is this, uh, you know, what am I trying to say here? Okay, so, like, you got a lot of these people who are looking down on um, people who think differently than they do, you know? Like, oh, yeah. looking down on them is stupid. Uh, but then you you also have this, like, crossover of people who are in the elite portions of the world who hold these ideas like these liberal ideas and um i don't know just like uh it, it seems particularly uh what's the word i'm looking for just like grotesque to see somebody who's like a billionaire celebrity looking down on some you know like white trash dude from west virginia like you're you know it just seems like particularly fucked up it does and it seems like something that a liberal would would have something to say about. Yeah. And they're the ones doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's like just like spitting. I mean, I feel like you, you get the idea of like uh, some mean conservative Republican like spitting on the Mexicans. Like, you know, like, like fuck these these Mexicans. They're picking the fruit that I own. You know, I own all this equipment and this land and you're picking the goddamn fruit off my trees, right. you know? Yep. Um, but that's like... That's I mean I don't want to pick on Brad Pitt but he's just like uber celebrity you know what I mean How about Matt Damon I like to throw I like to let's, yeah, let's, fuck let's Matt use Damon. Matt Damon It's a shame because I really like Matt Damon yeah, I and do Ben too. Affleck I still like Matt Damon to be honest with you mostly because of their connections to Kevin Smith but yeah yeah <clears throat> um but uh yeah no so yeah just like seeing you know you see these elite people and they they are those like mean republicans spitting on the mexicans you know Yes Yes, so weird. But. And and they can do it. They can do it today. A rich capitalist person can spit on someone today in a way that's socially acceptable because they have the moral high ground. Yeah. God damn it, Kyle. Yeah. And it, Liberals should be mad about that. Makes you think about like what racism, like that overt racism of the civil rights movement, you know, um, it was just like socially acceptable, you know, like it's completely like for, for people to act like we haven't made any progress along racial racial lines is hilarious. I mean, like, listen to like what we're talking about right now. Like, I don't know. Well, yeah, we absolutely. But it is. It's also astonishing how quickly we can reverse course. True. I think liberals are, are saying that right now with this abortion, with, this, um, you know, this uh, Supreme Court abortion issue is like in Texas, especially right now. It's like, uh, you know, the Roe versus Wade and all that sort of thing. Um, like how, you know, I thought we I thought we already had this conversation and agreed that abortions are, are fine. What's the problem? You know, it's like they're having this crisis right now about that. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I lost my train of thought. It's so. a sensitive subject. Abortions. Um, abortions it is, yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. He says, The individual bestows a mystic personality on the association of which he feels himself a member and gives it a religious adoration which is simply the deification of his own passion and no small stimulus to its intensity. So he's talking here about when people identify with a group, 
So let's just imagine you're the LGBTQ person. You're identifying with that group. That's where you're uh, creating your identity. That's the L's, where the G's, the B's, or the T's? All, all of the above. Which one? Oh, all of them. All of them. Okay. Especially, yeah, they do kind of come in a crew. Especially you know? the pluses. Yeah, the pluses. Um, so anyway, <laughs> come in a crew. Um, so it's like you give, it's like when you become a part of that group, you give that group the status, this higher elevated status, because you wouldn't be a part of the group if you didn't believe the group was somehow good and greater than you. Now you're a part of it. That's what you feel good about, being part of this thing that's greater than you, that that means the, the things that you agree with, yeah. that sort of thing. I'm a G. <laughs> and the group, the group, he says, becomes kind of like, kind of like, a, it takes on this religious uh, feeling. So, and you can see... The people in these LGBTQ plus people, um, I'm guessing most or all of them are atheists. Um, most or all of them are college age kids uh, who, you know, who, who, who take that identity. I'm not, I don't mean that there aren't gay and lesbian and transgender people. I just mean that when you're an adult, you no longer identify with a group like that. You know, most people don't. Although, God, man, maybe that's not the case. I don't know, man. Uh, you, people tend to grow out of the idea of group affiliation, at least we have the ability to do that. Sure. I wish more people would. The point is, you do bestow this uh, godlike quality on the group that you choose to belong to. Yeah, and you and you take on much of your identity as a result. Do you think that all bees are G? <laughs> all bees are G. Um, that sounds like one of those uh, like one of those logic word problems. Yeah, it does. If all, if all bees are C's. <laughs> no, no, no. All right. <laughs> okay, so now we're getting into the postmodernist stuff. This is where I think it gets interesting. He brings up three people, uh, Rousseau, Hegel, and Marx. And I did not highlight any of the Hegel stuff. Because fuck Hegel? Because I love Hegel. Yeah. And I think that he's misunderstood in, the con- in a political context, which Mark Levin does here. He obviously knows... Rousseau and Hegel and Marx better than me, so who am I to talk? But Hegel says stuff that are that's religious, that corresponds to my religious feelings. So I have a special place for Hegel in my heart. And so when someone talks about him with Karl Marx, kind of upsets me. Yeah. And it's silly because maybe Hegel was uh, sensitive to that to that Marxist type stuff. You know, he goes back to the early 1800s. You know, and it, it was interesting philosophy before it was tested. Now it's been tested. We know it's it's not what it's cracked up to be. Hegel didn't know that. Sure. So anyway, I just say that because I, I chose not to talk about the Hegel stuff. But here it goes. This is Rousseau from the mouth of Rousseau. So this is Mark Levin using quotes to let Rousseau tell his story and not to say he's not this conservative. By the way, Mark Levin is a Jew, by the way. So he's, he's, but he's not just this conservative Jew who, you know, who's, who's uh, uh, going to come in here and bash these postmodernists. And, and you know, uh, he, he, that's not his angle. He's like, look, I'm just going to quote Rousseau here. This is what he says. Here's Rousseau. He says, I conceive of two kinds of inequality in the human species, one that I call natural and physical, because it is established by nature and consists in the differences of age, health, bodily strengths, and qualities of mind or soul. The other may be called moral or political inequality, because it depends on a kind of convention and is established or at least authorized by the consent of men. This later type of inequality consists in the different privileges enjoyed by some at the expense of others, such as being richer, more honored, more powerful than they, or even causing themselves to be obeyed by them. Rousseau argued further that, if we follow the progress of inequality, 
uh, we will find that the first stage was the establishment of, of the law and of the right of property. The second stage was the institution of ma- magistracy. And the third and final stage was the transformation of legitimate power into arbitrary power. Thus, the condition of rich and poor was authorized by the first epoch, that was of the strong and weak by the second, and that the master and slave by the third. The ultimate degree of inequality and the limit to which all the others finally lead uh, until, until new revolutions completely dissolve the government or bring it nearer to a legitimate institution. Okay, so it's a long quote. I apologize. Um, so you'll notice that at the end, Rousseau saying that the goal is political revolution. That's the goal. And uh, he says um, that there are two types of inequality. The first kind, he says, is uh, natural. It has to do with, you know, you being stronger, taller, shorter, fatter, smarter, more capable. Those are all things that he, he says qualities of mind or soul, whatever that means. Um, that, that's one way you can be different and you don't have any control over that. The other way that you can be unequal, he says, has to do with privileges enjoyed by some at the expense of others, like being richer, more honored, or more powerful, and that you can even use those things to get people to obey you. And that's, that's a different type of inequality that we have to remedy through social revolution. Okay. So when he's talking about that second type, and he says that the inequality that's caused by people that are richer or more honored or more powerful that we have to solve that, and it's a problem we have to solve. And so my mind is like, okay, if this is where we're going, what causes somebody to be rich or honored? What Um, what causes somebody to be rich or honored? Achievement. Yeah. Can you, like, force it? Can you force somebody to, to to honor you? Can you? I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I think sometimes yes. I don't think so. I mean, you it's, can it's at like least you, force you, people to pretend. You be right. It's like you can't force someone to like you. Yeah, they, you'll, you, they can pretend to like you. You can't force somebody to honor you either. You have to earn it. And if you're richer, you had to earn that too. And so, the, what what Rousseau what Rousseau doesn't talk about here is that the type of inequalities that he's talking about, the second type of inequality that has to be remedied by social revolution. That is the same type as the first. It's the same type as the, as the natural types of differences. What you do with your differences or what you do with your capabilities, that, that is entirely up to you. You don't get rich by not earning it. You know, at least you don't for long. You know, talk to a pirate. Do you know any pirates? They don't live very long, Kyle. You know, Ill, ill-gotten riches is, uh, is the a sure path to death or jail. Yep. You know, it doesn't work. Yep. You have to earn those things. Absolutely. So what Rousseau is saying in this weird way is that the people who don't earn those things have to overthrow the entire social order so they can, so they can get their equality back. That's the weird fucking argument that the postmodernists are making, that Rousseau is making. But he does it in a way that sounds fancy, which is why I read the whole long, uh, you know, piece. It sounds good, and it convinces people. But it's, it, it, all you have to do is look under the hood. It's complete nonsense. And then the uh, last bit here is, um, Levin says, how will we know when the legitimate institution has been uh, achieved beyond the theoretical construct. And he says, Rousseau does not tell us. So when he says, like, what, when Rousseau says, what is the goal of this? 
He doesn't really tell you what the goal is. He says the, the means to the end is social revolution, but what the goal is beyond that, I'm not really sure. We'll, we'll get to the revolution, then we'll figure that out. Yeah. We're gonna pass the bill like before we idea. figure out what's in the bill. Yeah. All right. Here's Marx. Here's the bit he did on Marx. He says, here's Marx, Marx's own words. Society is, as a whole is more and more splitting up in two hostile camps into two great classes directly facing each other. Bourgeoisie, uh, those are the capitalists, owners of property and the means of production, and the proletariat, those are the laborers and the industrial working class. And Marx argues this, not only are the proletariat slaves of the bourgeois class, they are daily and hourly enslaved by the overseer and above all the individual bourgeois manufacturer himself. So the argument Marx is making is that just to be a laborer is to be a slave of the of the bourgeois, of of the of the people that control the means of production. That as a worker, you are a slave. Mm-hmm. So, does that make sense to you, Kyle? Um, no, not really. I mean, you you fail to make the distinction between somebody who's being paid to voluntarily work a job, just to, to like let's say an African slave from seventeen hundreds living in the South who doesn't have a choice and isn't paid. And, and can't go home to his family, you know, in freedom at night. Marx doesn't seem to make a distinction there, but he convinces millions of people all around the world that you're a slave if you're not running shit, basically. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. What, what is the alternative? Like, in Marx's paradise, like, we're all just going to be running shit? Well, so Marx says that the revolution, uh, that, that this revolution, that's the goal that Rousseau talked about, that that will give way to a utopia, this, this you know, uh, equal, uh, fair, kind, communist utopia that doesn't have a government. So, okay. so, yeah, the government dissolves because it's no longer needed anymore in, in, the, in the communist utopia. But see, nobody's ever got to that point in the, in the, in the experiment. Yeah. And so the com- the communist sympathizers today just continue to say what they've always said, that we just have to try it differently. We have to do this differently so that we can get there. We've never been able to get there. If only we could get there, then the communist utopia would be fulfilled and, you know, uh, all, would, all, all would be well, you know, in the world. Yeah. I wonder what getting there entails. Um, violent revolution. Yeah. A destruction of the of the of all of the systems that hold, hold everyone down. If you ask a liberal what those systems are, they're going to tell you the whole system. Yeah, the whole system, the system of money, the system of power, politics, influence. You know, everything. Language, even language, is holding you down. We got to destroy it all. It's weird, though, because I don't necessarily disagree. I just feel mm-hmm. like I think uh, I just. Wait, that's a good example of the of the appeal of, of, of the argument. Mm-hmm. Even Kyle's like, well, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think that my complaints would be different than theirs. But I think that there is a lot about the system that is designed to hold you down. You know, so that's that's part of the explanation for the appeal of communism because it's not entirely bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely bullshit. Yep. And though that's what that's what conservatives won't won't say. That's the part of the thing that they won't say, is that communism. That communism, the idea, is not entirely bullshit. 
Yeah. But either either extreme is 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 not not the truth. You know, either extreme, the communist or the capitalist extreme. Um, okay, so now he um, now Levin at this point he starts talking about a guy who wrote a book um, called Eric Hoffer. He wrote a book called True Believer um, 70 years ago. He points out that it was written 70 years ago so that you understand everything he's saying, uh, even though it sounds a lot like what's happening today, was was written 70 years ago. It was, it was written way before all of this stuff. Yeah. All right, he says, Hoffer noted that a mass movement attracts and holds a following, not because it can satisfy the desire for, uh, for self-advancement, but because it can satisfy the passion for self-renunciation. People who see their lives as irre- irredeemably spoiled cannot find a worthwhile purpose in self-advancement. They look on self-interest and something, as something tainted and evil. So I, w- I want to focus on this. Uh, people who see their lives as irredeemably spoiled. So imagine you're, um, imagine you're a black person in the United States, and you grew up in a household that told you that the system is racist, the country is racist, and ev- and everybody is, b- is holding you down, and you know your whole life is going to be a, a struggle worse than everybody else's who's not the same color as you, and that's just the way it is. You feel like your life is irredeemably spoiled, that you're, you're starting off three steps behind everybody else, that uh, it doesn't really matter how hard you try because it, everything's unfair. You got to try three times as hard as everybody else just to break even, you know, that's how your life looks to you. Yep. Like it's irredeemably spoiled. Yep. So what's what's the purpose for you to make something of yourself? It's all pointless anyway. It's all pointless anyway, yep. right? And so that's how that's how people feel. Um, that's how people feel. That that's how mass movements get people to feel like they're a part of a group to get them to uh, join together and to. Um, manipulate them in, as a group. It's way easier to mani- mani- manipulate a group than an individual. See, individuals ask questions. Individuals are skeptical, or at least they can be. Groups are much more stupid. Yep. Um, all right, he says, moreover, uh, mass move, uh, most mass movements are angry and gloomy movements, hostile towards well-happy, adjusted, and successful individuals. And he talks about Antifa and BLM in that context. Then he says, Hoff- Hoffer observed that not only does a mass movement depict the present as means, uh, excuse me, not only does a mass movement depict the present as mean and miserable, it deliberately makes it so. Right? So we can say during the riots, um, the world, the world is falling apart. You know, the Trump people are 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 causing the this ticking time bomb. You can see, you can see how many hurricanes we're having, guys. Way more hurricanes than normal. And look at all these buildings on fire, right? So, you've made, you've you've said the world is terrible, and then you've made it terrible so that it corresponds with what with what you think, yep. right? Yeah. He says the prime objective of the aesthetic ideal preached by most movements is to breed contempt for the present. It's like how things are now is fucked Fuck up. Yeah. We got to do something about it. So this guy is just talking about mass movements here. And I just want to point out the connection to the kind of progressive stuff that we're seeing. Because you, because he's going to paint this out like a mass movement. I guess I want to compare that to other types of mass movements. Like cults. Like, you know, uh, Jim Jones or David Koresh. Um, or religions. Yeah. You know? All right, so he says, um, 
By expatiating upon the incurable baseness and vileness of the times, the frustrated soften their feelings of failure and isolation. Thus, by depreciating the present, they acquire a vague sense of, of equality. Right? So it's the, it's the system. It's the present. It's, it's everything that's, that's here that's the problem. So I'm going to debase that to kind of make myself feel better. Like a bully who, who picks on some kid to make himself feel better mm-hmm. because he has no friends. Um, all right. He says, The end of such revolutions is never in sight, even when the revolutionaries have seized power. The revolution preserves for the cause has no end, and it is ultimately unachievable, as man and society are not perfectible. So it's like, that's why the revolution doesn't have a real end, right? Because there really isn't an end. Human beings aren't perfectible. So when you have a utopia, whether that's communism or or anarchy, Kyle, Mm -hmm. um, all right, he says the radical, this is a... Hoffer again, he says, the radical believe that by changing man's environment and by perfecting a technique of soul forming, a society can be wrought that is wholly new and unprecedented. So, so this is the idea that if we just have enough commercials, uh, enough Sarah McLaughlin commercials, mm-hmm. if we just have enough of those, that we can turn like the most cold-hearted conservative into a bleeding-heart liberal. And that if we could just make everybody kind and uh, and you know have great empathy and concern for the for the oppressed, like we can, we can, like it's possible they believe to make everybody think that to make everybody feel that way. Yeah, and it's not. It's fucking not. All right, so I'm gonna skip to the part with all of these pieces of paper on it. All right. <clears throat> All right, so he brings up this uh, book called Frontiers in Social Movement Theory, and uh, published in 1992, and it's like a compilation of all of these professors that would talk about, um, you know, all the stuff that we're talking about now, about um, postmodernism and social deconstruction and, uh, you know, the um, uh, critical race theory and all kinds of critical theory. These are all of these these uh, academics, um, like you know, a compilation of papers that they wrote and it goes back to the early nineties. So this is like, you know, all of the people that are in power now kind of relied on this stuff. And I want to, I want to read this to you because we were talking about these mass movements and he's specifically talking about the progressive type of, uh, you know, communist leaning type of stuff that we're dealing with Mm -hmm. today. I just want you to see the religious connections here because these mass movements, they can be political, but they can be cults for sure. So, so listen to this. He says the book's uh, preface sums up its overarching premise, and here it is. Social movements are instrumentalities to abolish or at least weaken social and political um, structures of of political and social domination. He also made the point that many people who participate in social movements do so at great sacrifice because, quote, they draw their subsistence not from the enhancement of present satisfaction but from long from long-term time perspective, sustained by the firm belief in the coming of a society embodying justice and democratic equality, instead of the here and now of exploitation and denial of human dignity. All right, so, um, so he's he's talking about here the coming of a society embodying justice uh, and democratic equality. Okay, instead of exploitation. So this is like the. This is like the end goal of, of communism or of this progressive um, movement. The end goal is to have a society that 
embodies justice and democratic equality. Something like that. And it's like this utopian, perfect goal that we can get to where everybody's kind and empathetic. Everybody takes care of the people that are oppressed, you know, uh, and downtrodden. We're, we're all worried about level, leveling the playing field and being humans and loving each other. That, that this is this ideal place that we're going to be able to get to if we just go through this process. And I read that and I thought to myself, the coming of a society that embodies justice and democratic equality, that's kind of like heaven. Sure. It's like the, the, the kingdom of heaven that the Bible talks about, the world to come, you know? Mm-hmm. And it has this religious connotation. Absolutely. So this end goal of communism, this perfect society, this just and, and equal and perfect society, it's like this Valhalla. It's like the Elysian fields of the Romans or something. Yep. So I had that, I had that idea. I had that, I had that thought. And then it continues like this. He says, one of the essayists, this is a guy named uh, Professor William Gamson of Boston University, or Boston College, rather. Gamson. It says, he emphasizes, much like Rousseau, the significance of the collective identity. And it goes like this. He writes in part, the participation in social movements frequently involves an enlargement of personal identity for participants and offers fulfillment and realization of self. Participation in the civil rights movement women's movement and new left, for example, was frequently the transformative experience central to the self-definition of many participants in their, in their lives. The construction of a collective identity is the most central task of, of new social movements. So this is this piece, and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking to myself, collective identity, and listen to the language. He says, it offers fulfillment and realization of the self. So imagine... I'm a kid, I'm a college kid, I'm trying to figure out who I am. I, I learn about communism, I learn about you know, some of these social progress movements, and I see the value in it, I see the, you know, the goodness in it, I see the people and the community, I want to be a part of it, it has this appeal to me. Um, and I, it's like, I get part of my identity from it. Right? So it's, it's a self-realization and a fulfillment. Those are words that are religious to me. Yeah. Self-realization. Sounds like this shit. It's, it does sound a little bit like the Scientology shit. Um, but then, he, but then uh, the transformative experience comes up. So like people who are parts of these movements, when you ask them about it later in life, they say that it was a transformative experience for me. Mm-hmm. The way that I would talk about having a mystic experience or a psychedelic experience. Yeah. That's religious, man. That's... A transformative experience is like being born again. Yeah. It's pretty it's, interesting. Isn't that? That is weird. And there's more. And there's more. I found them all. He says, when people bind their fate to the fate of a group, argues Gamson, they feel personally threatened when the group is threatened. Solidarity and collective identity operate to blur the distinction between individual and group interests. And I thought that was cool. Um, and, you, and you can see that too, like even in the church. You know, people, people belong to the church. That's the group. And, it, and they call it like the body, like the mystic body of God. That's how the Catholics talk about it. Yeah. You know, um, but that's the same sort of language we're dealing with when we're talking about communism and progressivism. Yeah. All right. And then, and then this one is interesting. He says, to partake of a collective identity is to reconstitute the individual self around a new and valued identity. And you can see that from people who take on, who take on the identity of a Christian. Or, or an even better connection with with communist, a believer. Sure. Right. Yep. 
So anyway, um, let's see. All right, I, I do have more. Um, there, there's another article in here by a different professor, a guy named Bert Klander, Klanderman from the Free University of the Netherlands. And he argues that collective beliefs are constructed and reconstructed over and over in public discourse. Okay. And so, so listen to that. Collective beliefs are constructed and reconstructed over and over in public discourse. So you hear people talking about it like on the news. Mm-hmm. You know, these subjects get brought up every single day. You hear people talking about the same shit all the time. And that starts to form your beliefs Everybody hears about, you know, Black Lives Matter and systemic racism and, uh, you know, cop violence. If everybody hears about that enough, then that becomes our collective belief that the cops are are racist, that society is, you know, out to get the brown people, all that sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And we hear it over and over and over again. And you know what comes to my mind, Kyle? The rosary. Doing prayers over and over and over. Singing hymns over and over and over. Yep. It's like a a meditation. It's like a meditation. Yeah. So I just want to point out the religious connections. It's pretty weird, man. And there's more. Let's hear it. I got two, two more, I think. Given the injustices, prejudices, and inequality imposed by society's dominant groups against oppressed groups... The oppressed groups must awaken to their inferior status, become politically aware, and then rise up in protest and even revolution against the existing society. So this is what I wanted to ask about this. I wanted to ask you about, Kyle. Um, When he says that there's these injustices and prejudices that are imposed by the society's dominant groups against the oppressed, the question that comes to my mind is, how did they become dominant? How did the dominant group become dominant? By dominating. <laughs> I, uh... Why does nobody ask? Why did the why did the progressives never ask? Why didn't they? For the same reason that the rich people isn't bad because he's rich. He's rich because he earned it. Yeah. So somebody who becomes dominant becomes dominant because they earned it somehow. Now you can take power. And you can take it violently. That's not, that, that doesn't mean you earned it. And in fact, if you take power violently, it doesn't last. You know, the people who live by the sword die by the sword, Kyle, right? Yeah. So Still waiting. <laughs> uh, I, just, I just think it's funny that they talk about dominant groups and oppressed groups, but nobody ever asks how did the dominant group become dominant. It's like the left, the left and these college kids think that it's because white people just born into it, it. pointed weapons at people and, and said, you know, you're oppressed now and you're and we're, we're we're just enslaving you and and somehow that's how it went down like what the fuck man um so you know there are reasons why people become dominant and i just wonder why nobody ever asked the question but i also but i also want to bring this religious point in and it's like the M- messiah syndrome so the oppressed becomes something like this maybe even the hero story the oppressed becomes enlightened, rises up and destroys evil uh, or oppression, and then he ushers in the, the kingdom, to the new Jerusalem, right? Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's what the hero, the hero, the, the hero story, but in this case, the religious hero. He, he's Jesus or Buddha, right? He, he, comes, he, he comes to enlighten the, the oppressed. They rise up and destroy evil, and they yeah. bring about the new Jerusalem. Yeah. Right? 
So the Messiah comes in, he, he, he rises up the working class, they destroy the evil government, and they bring about the, the communist utopia. That is a religious story, man. Pretty much. And, and you wonder how people get taken in by someone like, like David Koresh or, oh, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, or Scientology, like we talked about. Oh, yeah. All right, here's the last one. Here's the last quote. Moreover, much can be learned from the experiences of successful combat-ready oppositional protests. That is, veterans of protest movements that can spread and sustain activism. So this is a guy named Morris from that same book that was writing about this. And the book's right now going to pivot to talk about Cloward and Piven, which I haven't got there yet, so I just stopped. But he's talking about how the argument is that these people who have done radical social stuff in the past, they're like, they're like saints and they can be, they can be used and they're like mo- as a model I see. for the new people to come and, and do what they did. Gotcha. And he, and they use that word combat ready oppositional protests. And I'm like that, that language about combat group combat mm-hmm. that reminds me of like spiritual warfare. Yeah. Good against evil. The language about combat, that's religious language. It's about the bad guys and the good guys. The moral, spiritual warfare. Yeah. You know? What do you think about all that? That's pretty crazy. You see I it. You see it, right? Yeah, yeah. I see it for sure. And I, it doesn't even really... I mean, I haven't seen the uh, these particular examples, but it doesn't surprise me just because it seems so effective. You know, like... It does. Yeah. And, and you know, like Scientology is hugely successful and create batshit crazy. Yeah. And they, they can do that by playing the same game that the communists and the progressives are playing, and, you know, and the conservatives to a lesser degree. The game is to manipulate us emotionally and psychologically by playing on the things that we all want. We all want somebody to protect us. We all want a Messiah. We all want a new Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. True that. That's all I have to say about that. All right, Forrest. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.